Welcome to International Livestream. My name is Harper Schumacher from Go Your Own Path, and together with Quantum Nerd, Grace, and Roy from The Awakening Podcast, uh, we are very proudly present you uh, Stanislav Bogdanov, a very good friend of mine who I've Uh, who I know, who I've known already for more than nine years. And uh, today our topic is uh, Putin's inflation worldwide in the eyes of the Russians. I want to admit, uh, I want to tell you that um, uh, Stanislav or Stan is living and was born in the USSR in 1972. Uh, he is educated in strategic management, former translator who worked with quite a few VIPs, IT specialist for over 20 years, and happy married uh, with a lady who lived for over 30 years in the Crimea, both in Soviet times and under Ukrainian rules. And for this reason, we want to give also the other side the voice to give their perspective how they see the situation on, on this show. So Stan, welcome to our show. It's a real pleasure and honor to have you here on the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much for an introduction. It's a great honor and a great opportunity to bring maybe some alternative to the uh, overall picture that your viewers might be having because unlike uh, many I believe members of your audience, I have an honor, I can't say that it's a pleasure, to get information from both sides. And uh, whenever it comes from some mainstream me media like CNN, or New York Times, uh, The Times, you name it, I keep getting an impression, and it's a long time impression, that uh, we live in a very strange world. Basically, let's take a look around. There are presidential elections in France. There are two candidates fighting pretty closely or not so pretty closely for the votes of their people. But who is the most often mentioned person in French media, Putin. Basically, it's not about platforms, it's not about promises, it's not about their vision of uh, Frenchmen's lives and Frenchmen's future. It's about which choice is good for Putin, which choice is bad for Putin. French people are nobody's concern. At least that's how it looks from this side. And uh, this situation has been valid as far as I see it for quite a few months, not to say quite a few years. And as we talk about situation in America and their current president, or at least the person they call their current president, because there were quite a few issues with American elections, which look very, let me put it, strange to my Russian eyes. I don't think 
this could have ever happened in Russia for at least the last couple of decades, maybe in the early 90s that was possible, but definitely not today, not even 10 years ago. But okay, he's a president, he's an acknowledged president. And whatever question he gets from his people or from his media, the main words he uses to give his answer is once again Putin. So his latest statements uh, for the situation, for economical situation in the United States, Putin's inflation. And uh, this man, I have no other way to call it, it keeps spreading. It's Putin's inflation in France. It's just Putin's problem in Germany. Uh, if there was anything in Africa that might have concerned the mainstream media, I believe it would have gotten the same prefix, which is on one hand pretty strange to me. Uh, and on the other hand, uh, I believe there's uh, quite an easy explanation to what's exactly going on and why this particular uh, term and why this particular attention is, uh, uh, why this particular term is being used and why this particular attention is being paid. You know, as you mentioned, I was born in Soviet Union. That gave me a huge advantage because when I studied economical sciences back in uh, late 80s and early 90s of the previous century, I was lucky enough to get acquainted with both the fundamentals of what we call those days political economy, based on Adam Smith, on Karl Marx, and all his followers, including Vladimir Lenin and Joseph Stalin, for that matter. On the other hand, I had a chance to study knowledge in myself during the very same period of time with the teaching that is referred to as economics and which is the one and only paradigm for the Western world and for almost the entire world studying, I believe, it became a mainstream in 1975 worldwide when I was a three years old kid. And uh, being able to compare a couple of approaches, not just adhering to one and only through uh, true teaching as most of my colleagues were doing in Western world, I became realizing one small thing. Uh, there's one global difference between those two approaches. Political economy introduced initially formalized by Adam Smith and then developed by Karl Marx had one very fundamental 
well, how do I put it? The keystone. It stated that capitalism as a system will one day end because of a very simple reason. It only develops as your market grows. If there's no growth, the system in itself cannot support this continued uh, innovation, which is an imminent part of economical process of development and future innovations are always included in your current uh, goods price. And when I look at economics, I, and I'm not the only one, keep seeing one simple thing. It was developed to seemingly grow from the same Adam Smith teaching. And they are even referring to some of Karl Marx's statements. But this cornerstone that I mentioned is an absolute taboo. It doesn't exist in economics. That's why their viewpoint is very much limited. And there are situations, and nowadays we are facing one of such situations, which can not be explained in terms of economics. By the way, I think, well, let's look at it from a very simple viewpoint. We have a crisis more or less raging in the world economy uh, since I believe 2008. Somewhere it started earlier, somewhere it started a little bit later since well, all those dot-com issues. We have a Nobel Prize awarded each and every year to quite a few guys in different areas of knowledge, mathematics excluded due to an obvious reason. The question is, was there a single work that was at least nominated for a Nobel Award that somehow tries to describe or understand what's going on and what's the origin of this crisis? The correct answer so you're is talking, no. you're talking about the core of the crisis. Yeah. Uh, well, basically, as this system, we all, Russia included, still included despite all restrictions, this system we all live in can only keep growing and only keep developing for as long as the market grows. There were a few crises in the history that started with the economical, let's call them complications. And then they somehow got resolved a couple of times through world wars. And for the last time, it was resolved through destruction of uh, USSR, my mother country, and uh, the supporting countries. The mechanism that launched those wars or launched the destruction of USSR was always the same. Economical potential in the world with a few 
distinct and more or less isolated players reached the limits where each distinct market, global, but still they were, new, they were a few, reached their growth potential that caused the structural changes in the region's economy. And after that, there was basically two outcomes. Outcome number one, changing the model. Nobody dared to do it. And outcome number two, to decrease the number of competing models. A couple of times it was done through World War. And for the last time, it ended up relatively peacefully, although in the former USSR, the number of victims was at the end quite comparable to what we have for uh, what we had, for example, during World War World War One. Okay. But now, as we have one global world and one global market, there's no way to kick out the competitor in order to let the remaining ones or remaining one, if we're talking United States, to grow on their expense. So basically there are two possible ways now is to introduce a new model that nobody has or to try and get back to situation of early 20th century with three or four distinct systems, once again competing to each other, and once again trying to overcome the situation, maybe introduce a new model if anyone manages. But this transition would inevitably lead to a very unpleasant drawback. If we're getting back to situation at the start of the 20th century, then production efficiency that is uh, greatly defined by the depth of, how is it called? May I may I interrupt the, you, Stan? The labor division. Yeah. Let's say it this way. Um, we want to we want to uh, put several aspects in the show. Yeah. For this reason, I pass you to Roy so that he can ask you also some questions, so that he so that we can so that we can get the the great picture from different from different angles. Okay. No problem. So I pass you to Roy in order to um, so that he can ask some questions. Thank you. Thank you so Thanks much. Hi, Stan. So, like, I'm seeing a lot of the propaganda that's going on. And, I mean, I'm surrounded by a lot of people that kind of know what's going on. I mean, if I look at the last 20 years, I suppose, but if we're looking before the war that happened, if there was one leader that I looked at that actually looked competent and was speaking about out about the corruption going on in the world, it was actually Putin. And like 
know. So, like, the, the, we're seeing stuff, images of what's happening in Ukraine. And I have seen so much stuff that's been exposed. Like, they're showing so much bombings, but there were stuff from Beirut and everything. Like, because you've got family there, what's the real situation that's in the Ukraine? Well, first and foremost, I don't have family there. My wife is from Crimea. Crimea only joined Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic in the late 50s. It was the last gift to Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic, provided by Nikita Khrushchev. And uh, basically, we were living in a single country. Administrative borders, uh, they are not national borders. And the only viable reason to join Crimea to Ukraine was the fact that the only roads to Crimea over the land laid through Ukrainian territory. It was just easy in terms of logistics, in terms of cargo delivery and whatnot. People who lived there, they were Russians. They spoke Russian language. They felt themselves Russian. Not unlike uh, people from some other territories joined, uh, that joined Ukraine earlier in 20th of the 20th century, when the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic was formed and was created by Vladimir Lenin. There were uh, quite a few traditionally Russian regions, traditionally Russian people who ended up there mostly because when Ukrainian Soviet Republic, after the revolution, proclaimed the, the accept the Soviet power, the territory that did it was mostly populated by peasants. There were not enough workers there, and workers, in terms of Lenin's theory, were the driving force of the revolution, while peasants were just the accompanying force. Uh, but the drivers were the workers. And uh, the nearest area where he could get enough of the workers to uh, make the social profile of uh, Ukrainian Socialist Republic feel more manageable, more acceptable uh, to form this new country, to form this new uh, system, uh, was the territory that is now the uh, main target of our, we don't call it war, as our Supreme Commander, we're referring to it as a special operation. Because basically, if it was war, we would have bombing railroads. We might have started bombing uh, living quarters. Because, well, if we are waging war against a certain nation, against a certain country, then the entire nation and the entire country, at least uh, in terms of how wars are in 20th century, current century, 
like what happened in Syria, in Libya, in Yugoslavia, you name it. They are all legal targets or legal targets. But our actions are completely different. We are trying and we will be trying to save as much civilian lives as possible. We would also be trying as much as possible to spare as many combatants' lives as possible. If they are ready to surrender, if they are ready to lay down the arms and uh, stop opposing the operation, our troops guarantee their safety, they guarantee their health, and if there are no war crimes committed by a particular person, they guarantee their safe return to their families. That's no, uh, not the way how war develops. I mean, I've seen, I've got friends in Iraq and I've reported on that. And like, we don't see the same media that we, we've, we do know the, of all the atrocities that, uh, you know, the Americans and the English did in Iraq, as well as other yeah. countries, Libya and, as well. Uh, returning to my wife's family, they lived in Crimea for quite a few years. Uh, when uh, my wife's father was a young student, uh, you know, in Soviet Union those days, uh, we had absolutely, totally free higher education, but there was a trick to that. After you graduated, you had to work for, I believe, three years. I haven't been part of this system. It was, uh, uh, it ceased to exist one year before I graduated from college. You had to work for three years at a certain place, just uh, on your specialty, to compensate the expenses that the state had to make a specialist out of you. After those, uh, that period expired, you were able to have a second choice on what you plan to do and what you, where you want to continue your career. But the first period of three years was set in stone. Uh, your employee had no right to fire you. You had no right to leave your place of work. The only freedom you had is a possibility to choose out of the list provided to you where you prefer to work for those three years. And usually it was like that. The higher grades you have, uh, well, those with the higher grades have the first choice. So if you studied well, uh, you had a wider variety. If you studied not too well, there were just about a couple of options left to you and it could have been in any Republic, in any remote place, uh, 10,000 miles away from your home, that's how it worked. And when my wife's father graduated and became a dentist, he already knew 
that uh, his wife was pregnant and uh, he preferred that his baby would grow somewhere where it's warm, where it's sea, where there are some fresh fruits and vegetables aplenty. So he was Russian uh, from Tver region. It's about, uh, it's between St. Petersburg and Moscow, about two thirds of a distance from Petersburg to Moscow. And his wife originated, her parents originated from Tambov region, which was way closer to Siberia. But they met, they married, and after he graduated, they ended up in Crimea, both Russians, both Soviets, living there. He got the flat from the government. He started working. He made a good career. The babe was born there. They were talking Russian. Everyone around was talking Russian. Well, formally, it was a part of the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic, but whoever cares? Before the country collapsed. I don't know if it's uh, being told uh, in your areas or not. Uh, before it happened, there was a referendum in Soviet Union. And one and only question on this referendum was whether the people of Soviet Union want to keep it or they want to go separate ways. There were three republics that gave positive answer on this referendum. It was Estonian Soviet Socialist Republic, Latvian Soviet Socialist Republic, and Lithuanian Soviet Socialist Republic. Even Ukrainian Republic those days voted that they want to stay in the Soviet Union. All this separation, and pretty artificially infused separation, started later and actually against the people's will. And uh, my wife's father was the first to leave Ukraine. It happened about 20 years ago. Uh, when they started forcing him to teach dentists in Simferopol State University, in Ukrainian language, his answer was, there's not a single professional word in Ukrainian language to what I'm teaching those guys and girls. All those words exist only in Russian. You got the answer, it's not our problem. You either doing that in Ukrainian language or you get lost. And he left for Russia. Then my wife sent her elder son here. She was the third to leave and it happened about 15 years ago. Her daughter, lived in Russia for the last 12 years and she was the only one who haven't entered Russian citizenship 
before 2014. Her mother died recently, but she died after reunion, as we call it, of Russia and Crimea. And till her last day, she died in April, a few years after my birthday, actually on uh, April 18. And from the year of 2014 until her last breath, she kept saying that the date of Crimea return to Russia is as sacred to her as May 9. I believe you know what May 9 means for Russian. No, you might let people know because the listeners. Uh, that's the day that is celebrated in Russia as the end of great patriotic war in 1945. The Second World War. It's for us the Second World War. Second you, World War lasted longer. There was war with Japan and yeah. our troops took part in that too. So the Second World War started in 1939 and it ended after uh, the Nazi Germany capitulated in Berlin to our troops. But Great Patriotic War started on June 25, 1941, when Hitler forces crossed the Soviet border. And it ended when the Soviet flag was Berlin. Well, that's a very different war for us. And ju just on that war, actually, because it was only recently that I've seen that Poland, which, you know, they're kind of very close now with the Ukraines because of what's happening, but half of the Ukraine was actually Poland and it was just given away, even though they were fighting on the Allies side. Mm. Well, basically, you know, if we dig uh, too deep in uh, what was what, we can come to some very strange conclusions. Poland, in fact, passed through quite a few stages in its own development. And it was the moment, for example, uh, when Poland basically uh, consumed the so-called Grand Duchy of Lithuania, or however it's called in English. I'm just giving a brief yeah, translation of how it sounds in Russian. But no one dares to say aloud that the foundation documents of that great duchy of Lithuania was written in Russian language, in all times Russian language. And more than Lithuania, and people who inhabited had nothing to do with a great duchy. It basically was Belarusian Grand Duchy, inhabited and ruled by people who are now Belarusians. And basically, it they were descendants of the very same line of rulers that gave the first Russian dynasty, 
originated from Rurik. Basically, as brothers used to in medieval times, the line that now became Russia and the line that those days was Grand Duchy of Lithuania, they each thought themselves as true Rurik's descendants. And they were fighting tooth and nail to unite under their rulership what they both considered rightfully theirs, Rurik's heritage. So, well, Fadia's story. If you take a look at the history of those newly born Baltic countries, you will always listen that they were occupied by Soviets, they were occupied by Soviets, they were occupied by Soviets, they suffered from this occupation. Small part from my family history. My favorite grandfather, I knew him well, I liked him a lot, he was my mom's father. He was born in 19... 16, before Soviet Union ever showed up on the world map, in a Russian city of Revel. This city is now called Tallinn, and it's the capital of NATO country. We're talking about occupation. Who is occupying? Hey, guys, wake up. And it's not, say, 16th century, 17th century. It's the previous century. So, and uh, as of the territories where conflict rages now, I don't know whether you saw it or not, or whether you heard it or not, or whether you read it or not. Back in the year of 2014, in the territory now known as Ukraine, was a revolt. This revolt was uh, pretty well and solidly supported by the United States. I don't know whether you saw it, but we saw Victoria Nuland giving out some cookies to democracy defender on the streets. And this revolt ended up in uh, overthrowing the legitimate presidents and uh, the coming of those who now keep fighting for control over Ukraine that they got through an armed revolt and through the people's blood. That revolt, happened right the next day after the acting president, Yanukovych, and the opposition leaders who grabbed power from him the very next day, sat together on the table, had a negotiation, had a roadmap on how to overcome a political crisis. And this roadmap was approved and ensured by president of France and 
the leader of Germany. Right on the next day, all those agreements were void and null. There were people in Ukraine, there were regions in Ukraine that never accepted the results of this revolt. They were located in Donetsk region, they were located in Lugansk region, they were a plenty in Kharkov, in Odessa, in Kherson, in Mariupol, and definitely in Crimea. Those territories populated by people who felt themselves Russian for their entire lives. They never wanted what that change of the year of 2040 meant for them. And they learned very fast what it indeed meant for them, because I don't know if you saw it or not. I can, for some later talks, some later discussions, but that's interesting to dig up some video materials where protesters against what happened in Kiev were burned alive in Odessa, where people were killed in Kharkov. And basically, the bandits who were the, the main acting power of those events in Kiev in 2014, they managed to suppress all oppression by force, by blood, with the exception of three regions, Crimea, which was uh, pretty easy to cut off and uh, just block their possibility to enter this territory. There's a very narrow pass over there. I've been there quite a few times, even before I got married, we used to drive here from St. Petersburg to Crimea where, uh, via Kharkov, Zaporozhye, there's really a very narrow piece of land that connects Crimea to the mainland uh, Ukrainian territory. And two regions that were added, as I mentioned earlier in early 20th by Vladimir Lenin uh, to just bring up some workers to a mostly peasant population of the forming Republic. But why they? It's pretty easy because uh, not only they were Russians, not only they were people used to pretty hard work. Donetsk and Donetsk area is the land of coal. Most people there are miners. They are miners for generation. And miners are very special people, as I believe you would know. Basically, they each and every day going for work, they realize well enough that this might be the last day of their lives, such as their job but they accept that 
they are used to live with that feeling, with that sense, and uh, they are proud of that. And uh, I don't know the world history all that well, but I'm pretty aware of the role of people with such mentality in my country's history. Because for example, during civil war in the uh, 20th, 20th century, the most feared enemy from the red side were not soldiers, were not even communists, they were sailors. What's the difference between sailor and soldier? Even if the regiment loses the battle and basically ceases to exist as a regiment, usually it means that, well, at the very worst occasion, 20 to 30% of warriors actually die in battle. But if a ship gets hit, it usually means that in the luckiest situation, if three out of a thousand survive, they are lucky. That's why they were fit. They knew that they live every day as their last one. They accepted it. They were proud of it. And uh, by uh, gaining that insight and this uh, way of looking at life, at what they do, they got the privilege to do here and now whatever they think is right. And it's very difficult, almost impossible to oppose such people. They have a huge advantage over anyone else. It's like, well, it's like for a European peasant to meet a berserker from uh, Vikings invasion. And when those guys came to Donetsk area, they met exactly such people. You know, I do like music. Moreover, I do like a lot of American old-time music. And I have a favorite singer, he's an American one. He's a real American, I dare say. His name is Johnny Cash. And one of my favorite songs that he sings, it's not exactly his song, but I've uh, heard it in uh, quite a few versions. And my opinion is that Johnny Cash thinks it's the best. There's a song about exactly such people. Uh, there's a part in it that sounds a little bit like, mm, when you see me coming, you better step aside. A lot of men didn't and a lot of men died. I got one fist of iron and another of steel. If the right won't get you, then the left one will give up 16 tons. What do you get? That's about them. That's about what started 
1914 in and around Donetsk. That's about what was going on since 2014 until February 24 this year. They kept shooting at those people. They kept destroying their homes. They kept firing at their infrastructure. They were trying to leave them without water, without education for their kids. They were doing anything they could have ever imagined to make them surrender. Now, those people are taking back their own land, their father's land, their grandfather's land. We are helping them. That goes without saying. We are involved. And, you know, for me, there were two questions about this situation. Question number one. I was wondering if we were potentially ready to do it earlier. Because basically, being honest, well, I fully realized that there was no way for us to withstand those restrictions that we're living with now. Back in 2014, we were not ready. In terms of army to army comparative strength, we might have been uh, in a little bit better position, but economically, we were not ready. But I can't help wondering if it could have been done a tiny bit earlier. On the other hand, when I heard that it's starting, my main question was, if they really managed to provoke us and act a bit too early, or we acted when we were ready. Because basically, we started with the economical crisis and Putin's inflation, so-called Putin inflation. If you know where to look, and if you know how to interpret the figures, it was pretty obvious starting last summer that economical situation in the United States is uh, terrible. It was obvious those days that However, they try to hide it, but the actual industrial inflation was already at about 20%. And it was obvious that sooner or later, it will become clear and it will lead to consumer inflation reaching approximately the same values. The reasons for this crisis are actually beyond the American government control, beyond European government control. It's the end of the system that was dominant in the world for way more than a century. And there's no new model that can be 
presented and accepted here now, even if everyone was willing to do something in a different way. One such thing happened. Whenever a Joe uses to ask his government, guys, I'm in deep substance. I don't feel comfortable at. Who is responsible? They needed to pinpoint someone to appoint him guilty. And as I, as I see the situation, uh, even in December, it was not obvious what the choice would be. It could have been Vladimir Putin. It could have been Xi Jinping. Because they were pushing pretty hard to make him basically do the same on Taiwan. They are still pushing this scenario a tiny little bit. I don't know why. Maybe because it's too hard to stop it or they want to use it as plan B. For some reason, they won't be able to write off the situation to our president. I don't know. Because all the other potential nemesis, they are basically way too small and insignificant to cause the changes in the world that are imminent. And nobody in Washington, D.C., nobody in Brussels, nobody in uh, European capitals is ready or willing to admit that they were part of the system that ceasing to exist will bring millions of people to a way of life they have long forgotten. Because basically, as I see it, quite a few people in the nearest, say, three to five years in Europe, in the United States, are about to get back to the quality of life that grandfathers were experiencing back in 50s or maybe even back in 30s and you know what's the main difference between those times and the times we are still living at there was no middle class at all and now middle class is a dominant one in the united states in canada Germany, France, once again, you name it. And as I am not only I, I am not alone in this world. As some people see the way the situation is going to evolve, this middle class is likely to stop existing. And uh, Many countries are about to return to a situation where they were quite a few rich people. 
and the others who were roaming the country back and forth in the United States going from Tennessee to, Orleans, uh, to New Orleans, to Texas, whatever, just to find some job that will give them enough money to feed their families. Not for a fancy car, not for a house, not for vacation in Miami, just to provide food to their kids. And quite a few people, unacceptably, many people are quite likely to end up just there. And that changes all. I can't come up with a way how this can be avoided in very many countries. By the way, uh, I have to admit it, the United States are trying as hard as they might to postpone this. That's what all the restriction fuss is all about. Because basically they are announcing what they call sanctions. Then they're waiting for European countries to introduce as many sanctions as they only can. Basically at the expense of their own people's lives and their own people's interests. Then the United States pretty quietly declare that they're introducing certain exceptions. So we are not buying energy resources from Russia and no one should, but well, we need uranium for our atomic power plants. They are not part of the sanctions. Nobody should buy Russian gas. It kills people in, people in Ukraine. Guess what? The gas, so-called American gas, that they are offering to Europe, 90% of that is the gas they are buying from Russia. And so on and so forth. So I believe they, they are now trying to delay the inevitable. Oh, United States is a strange country, you know, very strange country. It lives from election to election. There's no real, for the last 10 years, when I look at that, I don't see any normal life. I don't see any normal development. It's an election. Then the team of a new president tries to get an idea of what's going on and where they actually are. And then there's time for another election. For Congress, then intermediate elections, then for Senate, then it's presidential again. And yeah, I think uh, Grace will know more about that. Grace is based in America, so she can uh, t take over. <laughs> At least that's the impression. Yeah. No, you're right. And regarding what you said about, like, I know there's a load of people in foreclosures in the States. There's over, there's over a million. It's supposed to be a lot worse than 2007. Most of the people 
here the interest rates are going up they're going to it's going to be a land grab i mean we know what the world economic forum is you'll own nothing it's all planned and uh yeah but unfortunately majority of people don't see it but i think grace does so she can actually take over okay thank you very much everyone i did expect that our conversation is going to end up to be heavy because when we want to see the truth of what's happening around us and some of us can directly really feel it and you know it's just it's just we just have to be honest to to see it and to learn about it and you pointed out a lot of things that make me think and i'm sure our viewers are making them think but that's what is most important is in any kind of conversation we it's a conversation that we need to think we need to reflect so at some point we have to end up in a lighter note okay and i'm glad that you did sing so let me just get me you mentioned about the one world which lately i've been hearing about the world um unipolar and multipolar and and then i'm in although you mentioned that you we, we did you know it's because i like i am i'm not a geopolitical analyst or any expert on that but I have my say, as long as you are a living woman and man, you have a say of what you're experiencing. So then as, as far as I understand, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, Russia, China, India, and a few other countries are getting together or they're not really saying, yes, absolutely, we are committed to the one world. And that I, I see also as a unipolar way. Okay, and in in fact, and I will tie it to your love of music, and which I see the appreciation of like Russians whom I meet here, and there be Russian musicians, Russian artists, dancers, and there there and not and and then of course professors, very intelligent people, right, and from all fact you know all aspects. And so with that, it seems like that is one most important thing in the education. And although you did mention that it's free education for three years, and then you kind of said that, oh, that's the catch. So in everything, it seems like there's a, there's a balance to certain things. And let me share you my experience. Only a certain period when in my college years that we were in, we were informed already and it was not free college but after we graduate as a nurse we have to serve a remote area in the philippines for six months before we can go out of the country which is the philippines is known as producing these nurses and and housekeepers and you know but not 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 known as doctors or oh, engineers to the Middle East. So we were, you know, but none of us seemed to complain about it because we felt that we have a responsibility to also serve our country and the people, especially it was on, but we had like a lottery. We can choose three places and however they decide, you can choose where you want to go and they gave us a little bit of stipend 
for us as nurses, I and I believe it's, I'm not speaking in behalf of the nurses, but I know my classmates, we were excited. We will choose the farthest one so we can be away from our family and learn how to live away from our family. Because most of us, they're family tight, right? So you continue to live until you're married. That's the culture. So we, so I didn't even get my choice of far away island, like in all the way to the south. They they put me right in my city. So it was okay too, because the people I met were people from other cities. So basically, so that's like, you know, that it's like uh, the downsize or what, you know, that, but it's also good, good thing. So, so with that education, so don't you think, it's still but good that at least you get the free good education that you had your choice. You know, I have noticed a very good point in your speech. I want to specifically just single out and maybe put a little bit different accent to it. You were talking about say unipolar, multipolar. It's not that we in Russia or the guys in China, think about that unipolar, multipolar point of view. It's a little bit different. The Western consensus says that there's only one true definition of freedom. There's only one true definition of democracy. And if in several areas of the world, what they call democratic looks totally different to you. It's just not that something's wrong with the term, it's just you don't understand how it works. But in fact, for me, and for most Russians, I believe, the true nature of freedom lies in the fact that your freedom can only go as far as it doesn't interfere with another people's freedom. And we can appreciate the freedom for, say, BLM. Let it be them. For as long as I am free never to encounter those guys. And it's about setting borders. And it's about living to coexist and not trying to break an opponent so that he ceases to be or agrees to your standards. And basically that's how the history of Russia evolved over centuries. We were never tried, uh, we have never tried to, when the country expanded, there were many nations back in Soviet unions who had over 100 nationalities but we never tried to make them forgive their roots, make them forgive their customs, 
make them share only the values that the title nation shared, make them forget their religion. We, what Russia was doing for centuries, she, as a country, was imposing certain rules and certain values, but at the same time, nursing the tradition of people who inhabited this territory for centuries, even before Russians came. That was during, as you call it in English, Ivan the Terrible, that was during times of Catherine the Great, who brought basically Crimea and quite a lavish part of what they call Ukraine at the moment into Russian Empire. These were in Soviet times and even recent history. I was a witness and you might have heard about problems when Chechen Republic has almost split it of Russia and there were two wars on the territory of Chechen Republic. But now, in the year of 2024, who are the most feared Russian warriors from the point of view of those Ukrainian forces? Those are guys from Chechen Republic. And they position themselves as Russian warriors. Even though they pick their language, they, their religion is different from the religion that majority of religious people in Russia follow. Their customs are pretty different from what we have, for example, here in St. Petersburg. But they feel themselves Russian. And it was like that back in Soviet times when Definitely, I haven't heard it myself, but I read it from several sources when uh, someone addressed Stalin and uh, stated that he is Georgian, meaning not the state of Georgia, but Georgian, Soviet Socialist Republic. Stalin corrected, no, I'm Russian of Georgian nationality. So Stan, if I may ask, if it... If, it, if you have like an opinion that you could, or Putin ask him, so what's your thought on how we can handle the situation? What could be like the two or three things that we, that must be like addressed or changed? I don't think it will be, I mean, I know that they, they, they kind of uh, did a propaganda of uh, creating the NATO for the purpose of, you know, maybe not creating wars, but obviously it is what's creating and instigating most of this. So if as, as a Russian, what would that be that could really maybe make that shift? And when you mention about respect and allowing people and keeping the culture, I, that reminded me of the law of one. You know, when everything, it will say that everything is part of source, everything is, is returns to source and everything is within source. 
whatever you call that as some, you know, your God or whatever. So what could that be? Because perhaps in our own little ways, I can, I also believe that we even may, we all have a, a part to play, whether it's in a conversation with other people, it contributes to that energy, such as just, you know, ordinary people talking with friends, and then you, you, you make so much conversation or judgment that you don't even understand what's happening. So what would that be for you? You know, you pick the right and only word. This word is respect and real respect. Because, well, basically how it currently works in uh, modern politics, for example, there is a country, well, pretty small one somewhere in Africa. There's a big country somewhere across the ocean. And when this country somewhere across the ocean wants some resources given by people of that small African country, by their history, by creators, design or whatever, they've been living there. They're using that resource. They're trying to live their lives. Is anyone from across the ocean pays any respect to how those people existed, how they evolved, how they treated each other before the guys from all of the Seattle showed up. You get a neighbor in your everyday life. If you both respect each other, you may be totally different in um, religion, in um, political views, in uh, even in social status. At least uh, here in Russia, it's uh, quite possible nowadays when the people with um, financial capabilities that differs uh, six, seven times uh, end up living in the same house in, in the neighboring flats. But as long as you pay respect to your neighbor, and as long as he pays respect to you, you will end up doing together pretty fine. And maybe even if something happens in your life, you may unexpectedly get a helping hand from one of your neighbors. I've seen that quite a few times. I did that quite a few times. But it all starts and it can only last as long as there's a mutual respect. It's true with your neighbors. It's true with your family. Because basically, there are tons of reasons that can bring two people together and initiate the family. But there's only one force that can keep this union ongoing and strong is the mutual respect. If it's there, everything's possible. If there's none, from one of the end, nothing good 
stable will ever come out of it. That's that's my viewpoint. So your your term was the only one and the true one. That's my opinion. Well, thank you so much. Now back to Johnny Cash. Do you remember any song that he wrote about respect? I think he I think he wrote or sang a lot of songs. In fact, in, in that's like a protest songs. Uh. And then I'll pass it on to Hart back to Hart. <laughs> I know you know other songs. Okay. Well, I know, but the, if anything comes oh, up, basically, you know, it's. I won't say that right on spot. I can come up with something related exactly to respect, but as we ended uh, the discussion of respect with uh, family issues, with uh, family love. Then there's a great song written not by Johnny Cash, but by June Carter Cash, who dedicated it to Johnny, even when she was married to the other man and Johnny Cash was a husband to another woman. And that's the great song and it sings it real great and it's obvious that he feels it and basically that's the song I sometimes used to sing to my wife you know, though she doesn't understand English but she she understands the feeling I fell into a burning ring of fire I went down 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 and the flames went higher and it burns 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 the ring of fire the ring of fire love is a burning thing and it makes a fiery ring bound by wild desire i fell into the ring of fire Thank you so much. <laughs> I'll just make one comment, Hartmut, before. Lately, I've been watching the movie, The Man in the High Castle. And, you know, they're, they're, the theme song is Edelweiss. And so it's a really good movie about just a lot of things. Okay, Hartmut, thank you so much. Stan. Stan, it was a real pleasure to have you here. And for all listeners, uh, maybe they have questions. And um, I suppose uh, we do it this way this time. Uh, if any listeners of you uh, have any questions, please pass the question to Grace. Grace, is that okay for you? Yeah. And then we send it to uh, to Stan so that we can uh, so that you can get the answer. Maybe also next time if you want to, if we have an next uh, next time on the show. I really would appreciate Stan that it will come the next time. I think. Uh, this was really only a scratch what we are yeah, talking about. Basically. Yeah, definitely. And if and, uh, we... listeners and your viewers are interested in developing certain aspects of what we touched upon tonight, then based on their questions, I will be able to prepare maybe more detailed or deeper yeah. explanation for certain issues and come up with that with some materials. Why not? Brilliant. Brilliant. So that we, so that we can, can also show the other perspective 
of the things in the world. And uh, as I told you, thank you so and much. And maybe for a little bit show. different image of a typical Russian than the one you normally see in Hollywood movies. <laughs> yes, definitely, definitely. And for all uh, and to the listeners, thank you so much for joining us. And um, going and back to my grandson. <laughs> yes, and uh, if you come next time, um, we have very soon uh, also another guest. I think Grace. What is the next guest? When we do have the next guest, Grace, you're muted. So sorry. Yeah, we're gonna have attorney Tom Renz, and uh, so I know he's here. Uh, is for me, he's the first lawyer who really spoke up of what's going on with the scandemic. So we're gonna have him back, and that's at least for next Tuesday. All right. Thank you so right. very much, and do share whatever if you this resonates to you share it okay brilliant thank you so much and so i wish you a wonderful evening and goodbye from germany from new jersey from poland and from st petersburg in russia thank you so much bye bye